Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This week, we're going to continue our look at 1969 and the musical events that shaped that year and made it one to remember. Of all the significant events that happened in 1969, two of the most significant were concerts, Woodstock and Altamont. Woodstock was the more noteworthy of the two, featuring 32 acts and held over three days in August, hosting an audience of more than 400,000 people on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York. It was billed as three days of peace and music and recognized as being a pivotal moment in the history of popular music and defining a countercultural generation. The whole thing was the brainchild of two promoters and two entrepreneurs, Artie Kornfeld, Joel Rosenman, John Roberts, and Michael Lang. Earlier in 1969, the two New York City entrepreneurs, Roberts and Rosenman, were in the process of building a massive recording studio complex in Manhattan called Media Sound. They met Lang and Kornfeld through a business proposition they had centered around a similar but smaller project they were working on in Woodstock, New York. Lang and Kornfeld were looking for financing for their project, which was quite out of the way geographically. And as a result, Roberts and Rosenman weren't really interested. They did, however, offer another proposal, a concert that would feature artists like the band and Bob Dylan, who were known to play in the Woodstock area. They all agreed and formed a legal entity called Woodstock Ventures. This partnership was not without its challenges because the four men had different visions, especially in terms of financial discipline. Roberts and Rosenman were the bankrollers. They ran a tight ship, and the other two were a lot more laid back and saw Woodstock as more of a casual opportunity. At one point, Roberts and Rosenman considered walking away from the project for fear of it losing money as a result of the differences in approach. The four organizers of Woodstock created it with the intention of it being a money-making venture. It only became a free concert after it drew hundreds of thousands more people than the organizers imagined would show up. They sold close to 186,000 advanced tickets and figured approximately 200,000 people, maximum, would show up. The first act to sign on was Credence Clearwater Revival, and they agreed to play for $10,000, which is the equivalent of about 70 grand today. Before CCR agreed to participate, the promoters had a really difficult time trying to convince bigger-name acts to get involved. When it became public knowledge that CCR was involved, other big-name acts fell into place pretty quickly. Afterwards, some members of the CCR would be left with a bad taste in their mouths after their Woodstock experience. The band started their set at 3 a.m., and at CCR frontman John Fogarty's request, the set was cut from the Woodstock film released following the event. The original location of Woodstock changed a couple times before the organizers finally worked out the location details with Bethel dairy farmer Max Yazgur. There were a lot of complications involved, including residents banning milk purchases from Max's farm to try to prevent the hippie festival they didn't want to endure, and the many zoning and licensing issues that required navigation in order to host the event legally. The organizers advised Bethel authorities they expected no more than 50,000 people maximum, which they knew was not true. They were scrambling. There was still a lot of infrastructural work 
that needed to be done to get the festival up and running. Because of the delays in finalizing the venue, organizers didn't have enough time to sufficiently prepare the grounds for an event of such a large scale. And with only a few days remaining, the organizers had a choice to make. Complete the fencing and create the ticket sale structures, like ticket booths, or lose all profits and face financial losses. Or they could focus on creating a proper stage and not run the risk of dealing with disappointed and potentially unruly crowds. What the organizers didn't anticipate was early arrivals. People started showing up at Woodstock as early as Wednesday by the tens of thousands when the festival was scheduled to start, in fact, on Friday, two days later. People who didn't have tickets just walked through holes in the fences, and this forced the organizers to make the festival free of charge eventually. As a result, the organizers took on massive financial losses and were left nearly bankrupt. But the good news is that they owned the recording and film rights for Woodstock, which easily wiped out those losses following the release of the documentary film Woodstock in March 1970. The influx of this many attendees to the venue site obviously caused traffic chaos, and eventually the Bethel authorities gave up trying to enforce traffic codes based on sheer traffic volume. It's believed that even more people would have showed up if not for news reports describing the traffic congestion. Arlo Guthrie made an announcement saying the New York State Thruway was closed due to traffic jams, although this closure never did actually occur. Rain had turned fields and roads into mud, and the facilities available were no match for the massive crowds. So sanitation, first aid, food provision, shelter, they were all challenges for the hundreds of thousands of festival goers at Woodstock. Sullivan County actually declared a state of emergency, and personnel from a nearby Air Force helped to keep order by airlifting performers in and out of the concert site. The music kicked off just after 5 p.m. Friday evening with Richie Havens, who was put into the opening performance slot after Sweetwater were stopped by police on their way to the festival. Sweetwater would eventually take the stage a few hours later, around 7.30. Ravi Shankar played a rain-soaked set after that, and Melanie was sent on stage to replace the incredible string band after they refused to play in the rain. They would eventually play at 6 p.m. the next day. Melanie got called back for two encores, and this was even before she would go on to record her best-known song, one of my 70s favorites called Brand New Key. Joan Baez closed out Friday with a set that started around 1 a.m. Saturday morning, and she was six months pregnant at the time. The next day, the music started at just after noon and went on nonstop until 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning. Canned Heat, Mountain, The Grateful Dead... Janis Joplin, CCR, Sly and the Family Stone, and Jefferson Airplane all played Saturday, as did The Who, with a set between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. So bizarre. Some of the artists, like John Sebastian, who was actually there intending just to be a spectator, was recruited at the last minute in response to all sorts of situations that forced changes to the original schedule. But the show forged on. Sunday continued with Joe Cocker getting started around 2 p.m., and Johnny Winter, The Band, 10 Years After, Sha Na Na, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears all followed. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young played an electric and an acoustic set around 3 a.m. on Monday morning, 
with Neil Young sitting out most of the acoustic portion. And Jimi Hendrix was the last act to go on at Woodstock, taking the stage at 8.30 a.m. Monday morning due to rain delays. At some point during the festival, the audience had peaked at about 400,000, but by the time Hendrix played, there were probably only about 30,000 people remaining. And most of those people left during his performance. He played on for two hours, however, including his psychedelic rendition of the National Anthem, which would go on to be emblematic of the 60s experience. There were a lot of notable acts of the time that didn't play, either because they declined or because there was some issue hindering their ability to be there. Jeff Beck wasn't there, very much on purpose. He deliberately broke up his band before Woodstock so that they wouldn't be able to play the festival and be, in his words, preserved. The band Free declined an invite to play, instead playing the Isle of Wight Festival a week later. So did Bob Dylan, despite the fact that he actually lived in Woodstock, New York. He just wasn't interested. Jethro Tull declined because frontman Ian Anderson didn't like hippies or inappropriate nudity. Frank Zappa turned it down because there was too much mud. Led Zeppelin was convinced not to play by their manager Peter Grant, who told them they would be regarded as just another band on a very large bill. The Doors declined because they thought Woodstock would be too Bush League, and they apparently really regretted that decision afterwards. The Birds declined for that same reason. Tommy James and the Shondells also declined for that same reason. James would say later that his secretary called him in Hawaii to tell him that some pig farmer wanted the band to play on his farm, and... He, of course, instantly turned the offer down, but he kicked himself for decades later. Some acts declined because of scheduling conflicts. The Stones couldn't play because Mick Jagger was in Australia shooting a movie. Joni Mitchell was set to appear on The DeCabot Show. Simon and Garfunkel were working on a new album. And here's an interesting one. Chicago were initially expected to play Woodstock, but were forced to decline because of a contract they had with promoter Bill Graham. The contract gave Graham the ability to control the band's performance dates at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. It's said that he deliberately rescheduled one of their Fillmore shows to occur on August 17, thus forcing them to back out of Woodstock. He did this with the intention of filling their slot with another band he managed at the time. Santana. All things considered, the festival was surprisingly peaceful, given the number of people and all the conditions involved. There were two recorded fatalities at Woodstock, one death resulting from complications related to insulin usage. The other occurred when a tractor ran over a sleeping festival attendee in a nearby hayfield. There were also two births recorded at the festival one happening in a car caught in traffic, and another in a hospital following an airlift of the mother by helicopter. There were also miscarriages. Four of those occurred during Woodstock. Max Yasger, the dairy farmer who hosted the event on his property, was especially proud of what did and what did not transpire during the festival. He got on the microphone to address the crowd and talked about how fascinating it was that almost half a million people could spend three days with just music and peace on their minds. He later said, 
if we join them, we can turn those adversities that are the problems of America today into a hope for a brighter and more peaceful future. Yasger declined a request to rent out his farm the following year for a 1970 follow-up to the festival. He would die three years later. The legacy of Woodstock saw Bethel residents harbor a great deal of bitterness in the immediate aftermath of the festival. Politicians deemed responsible for allowing Woodstock to happen were not re-elected, and New York State and the town of Bethel combined to pass mass gathering laws designed to prevent any more festivals from occurring. Approximately 80 lawsuits were filed against Woodstock Ventures, primarily by farmers in the area. The Woodstock movie financed settlements and paid off the $1.4 million of debt, which today would be about $9.8 million, that Woodstock Ventures had incurred from the festival. A fascination with Woodstock would loom long after the festival changed popular music history forever in 1969. 25 years later, a plaque commemorated the original site of the festival. The main field and the stage area remain preserved, and the grounds of the Yasger farm are still visited by people of all ages from all over the place. In the years immediately following Woodstock, farmers in surrounding areas tried to prevent tourists from visiting the site. They would spread manure during anniversaries, and tractors and state police cars even formed roadblocks to keep people out. In an impromptu 20th anniversary celebration, 20,000 people gathered at the Woodstock site in 1989. The bitterness would eventually give way to acceptance and even appreciation in later decades for Bethel, however. In 1997, a community group posted a welcoming sign for visitors. The town of Woodstock had always made an effort to cultivate a connection with the festival, unlike Bethel, who seemed to want to wipe the event from its history. But that stance did eventually change, and the town of Bethel began to embrace the festival and what it meant culturally. Efforts were made to popularize the link between Bethel and Woodstock, including the scattering of Richie Haven's ashes across the site in August 2013. The following year, Michael Lang, one of the four organizers of Woodstock, announced that there were plans in place for a possible 50th anniversary concert in 2019 and that he was sourcing out possible venue locations. In late 2018, it was confirmed that there were plans for a 50th anniversary event to be held on the original site and operated by an organization called the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, scheduled for August 16th through 18th in 2019. Live Nation got involved. At the time, Lang told a reporter that the 50th anniversary concert would hopefully recapture the history and essence of what Woodstock was. In early 2019, the proposed lineup for Woodstock 50 was announced, and it included a couple of artists who performed at the original Woodstock, John Fogarty from CCR, Carlos Santana, David Crosby from Crosby, Stills & Nash, Melanie, John Sebastian, Country Joe McDonald, three Grateful Dead members would perform as Dead & Company, Canned Heat, and Hot Tuna which contained members of Jefferson Airplane. The new proposed site of the event was Watkins Glen International, the racetrack in Watkins Glen, New York. 
One month later, on April 29, 2019, it was announced that Woodstock 50 had been canceled by investors who had become doubtful that the festival could be successful. The organizers then denied any cancellation, with Michael Lang saying in the New York Times that talk of a cancellation wasn't true. This went back and forth for a little while. Lawsuits were launched, and Woodstock 50 organizers then announced that it would go ahead with financing from Oppenheimer and company so that the festival could proceed, even without its original financiers. On July 31st, 2019, it was reported that the 50th anniversary of Woodstock would not be. It had been cancelled once and for all. And you know, in my opinion, it was probably for the best. Just because something as purely magical and culturally influential as, as Woodstock, even under the guise of having it be celebratory, is likely best just left alone, purely out of respect. Now, an event we definitely would not want to recreate is the other noteworthy music festival of 1969, Altamont. No peace and love there, my friends. Join me next week for an examination of what was called The End of the Innocence, the third and final part of our look at the great many musical things that happened in the year 1969. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Connect with me on Instagram and Facebook at Brent Jensen Music and on Twitter at RealBJensen and on my website, BrentJensenMusic.com. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.